welcome to Getting to You, the podcast for healthcare professionals who help those at risk or living with HIV, brought to you by the Connecticut AIDS Education and Training Center. My name is Sharon McKay, AETC Program Coordinator, and co-hosting with me are Peter Gay-Namard, Project Manager at the Department of Health and Human Services at the City of Hartford. Hello, everyone. And Dante Gennaro, Program Director of Connecticut AETC at Yale University. Hello, hello. Happy to be here. All right. We have a lot to discuss on today's topic of discussion, DoxyPet. But first, let's jump in with this month's hot topic. Okay, Dante, give it to us. Fresh off the press. Thanks, Peter Gay. On July 25th, 2023, Emory University reported a new study that demonstrates the ability to remove a key barrier to an HIV cure. Researchers at Emory University presented at the International AIDS Society Conference in Brisbane, Australia, and reported they've demonstrated that they can use JAK inhibitors to potentially break down or decay the viral reservoir in people with HIV, offering this new way for a cure. The researchers also went on to explain that an HIV viral reservoir is essentially a small number of immune cells containing dormant virus integrated with the genomes of individuals who have suppressed viral replication with HIV treatment. These are reservoirs that, in, in essence, hold these cells that contain the virus where the medication is unable to reach them. And so these viruses are hanging out in these reservoirs waiting for the patient to stop taking the medication so that they can come out of these reservoirs and continue infecting the rest of these cells, specifically white blood cells. The data presented at the conference were results from a phase 2A clinical trial, which means that this trial passed phase 1 and is now determining the efficacy and safety at the intended clinical dosage to confirm the optimal manner of use. What was really exciting about this research is that they stated based on a lineal model of decay, the researchers estimated an astonishing 99.99 clearance of the peripheral HIV-1 reservoir in less than three years. Now, it is also important to point out that their research did specifically note that the study focused on only peripheral viral reservoirs, and that may not fully represent the entire viral reservoir within the body, including what are called sanctuary sites where HIV can persist despite treatment. Either way, this study provides some hope that a cure for HIV may be right around the corner. Sharon, what are your initial thoughts on this? I think this is really exciting because to me, what it says is that there's a way to distinguish cells that contain the virus from cells that don't. And even if this drug doesn't become the drug that does that, it means that there is a way to do it. And that's pretty exciting for all kinds of diseases that include an integrating virus. But I don't know about right around the corner. I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done. And a couple of questions that I have about this. One is, does it matter what the initial viral load was in the person? Because a person with a higher viral load initially may have a higher reservoir. That's a great point. That is. How about you, PDK? Do you have any thoughts on this? So again, for me, it's that hope is still there. Um, as we've seen uh, with the advancement of, you know, just medical treatment overall, when I started working um, in the HIV AIDS field uh, back in 2007, I had a, a client who was taking 30 pills a day, right? Um, now we're advanced to injectables once a month. I think as long as this fight has been happening who would even hear about the research. I'm not a researcher, but I'm always, I'm always eager to hear about what is being done and how even, even hearing that the barrier to the cure is in the, the, virus, the virus that hides, as you mentioned. Um, I know that there's been some Saul uh, research, that's where they're stuck. But to hear that the, the work, the research, what they're looking into is still moving forward, I think there's hope there. And that's where, that's where I want to stay. I want to stay in the, there's hope there for a cure. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Sharon and Peter Gay. 
To read about this presentation for yourself, we'll include the link in the description of today's webinar. Now it's time for our first quick break. Don't go anywhere because when we come back, we have Dr. Amit Ashra here to discuss DoxyPath. We'll be right back in just a few seconds. Hi, my name is Keith. I've been positive since the 80s. I'm thankful that today medication has little to no side effects and keeps me healthy. And because I take my one pill every day, I am undetectable, which means I can't pass HIV to my partner. With this new routine HIV testing law, everyone is so lucky to get on meds and keep them healthy and undetectable. That's why I'm here to tell everyone to screen and test. For more information, visit test-ct.org. All right, welcome back. We've invited subject matter expert, Dr. Amit Ashra, to talk to us today about DoxyPep. Hi, everyone, and uh, excited to be here and, and, and talk about such an important hot topic, uh, DoxyPep. Um, so yeah, my name is Amit Achra. Uh, I'm an MD. I have MPH and PhD as well, uh, focused on HIV epidemiology. Um, my background starts in India and in Mumbai, uh, where I did my med school. Then I did my epidemiology uh, PhD and uh, MPH training in Sydney in Australia. And then uh, my clinical training was based in New York uh, at Cornell, uh, and then infectious disease at Mass General Brigham at Harvard. Uh, and then since uh, about two years or so, I've been at Yale. Uh, focusing uh, on uh, working in the HIV clinics, uh, STIs, um, uh, and, and also conducting a lot of training for my fellows uh, and some research as well in, in the HIV and STI world. Um, last couple of years, I've been also, or last year or so, I've been working uh, pretty closely with the Department of Health uh, funded by uh, CDC uh, to be the point person in the state for some, uh, you know, clinical expertise for as uh, complex STI cases and MPOX, as well as working with the with the CT uh, DPH uh, Department of Health for uh, on some um, implementation work on the STI and MPOX prevention. Uh, did you recently join um, the Rattel? Is it the Rattel Institute? That's it. That's a yeah, Rattel PTC. Yeah, which is actually I think cutting the mothership is in. Uh, Massachusetts, but it's basically a whole New England wide or, or even wider than that uh, educational uh, initiative to, to build the capacity of providers in various states uh, on, on the topics of SDIs. Great. Thank you. Dr. Ashra, in the beginning of today's podcast, we were discussing a development in possibly step forward towards a cure for HIV. Do you have any comments or insight that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, that that is a you know interesting uh, study. So the one that you're referring to was presented at the IAS uh, International AIDS Conference that just concluded at Brisbane, uh, titled uh, "Ruxolitinib Mediated HIV One Reservoir Decay uh, in the uh, A5336 Phase 2A Trial." Yeah, so it, it, it's an interesting uh, attempt. So, you know, I, I'm not a cure expert, so I don't know how this works, but it's a JAK kinase inhibitor. And, and the idea is that the HIV likes to hide in our cells and uh, they kind of integrates itself uh, into our own genetic material. And so it's hard to get rid of. So one of the reasons why we have not found a cure for this is because it just kind of mends itself into our own cells. So you can't really tease it out back to cure it. And so all you can do is to use the antiretroviral drugs to prevent it from it's replicating or, or, or reproducing, but you can't get rid of it from its roots anymore. And so, you know, the, the, this is a interesting attempt. I, I cannot give you details on how the mechanisms work, but the idea is there is, is, is kind of uh, hinting that it might be affecting, it might be able to tease out uh, that, that piece of virus that's stuck in our genome. Um, but, you know, uh, there are lots of, you know, it's very early, you know, so it's, it's if I was a basic science researcher, I would be very excited, uh, but I'm a clinician and I know that a lot of these early promises often do not end up in uh, any effective treatment and that's because it's just very hard uh, to find, uh, uh, you know, uh, treatments and cure for, you know, infection like HIV. Uh, you know, so for example, these researchers were testing the HIV uh, hidden material or reservoir 
uh, on mostly I think in the blood and in the periphery, uh, but it also likes to hide, for example, in our lymph nodes, in, in organs, and, and they didn't go there. So uh, it's impossible for them to know if it was also uh, effectively taking out the HIV from very deep hidden uh, spots in our body. And so, uh, you know, again, very early, very exciting uh, and suddenly warrants some further investigation. Um, we all want to hear that cure word one day, you know, but knowing the track record of this research has uh, been very humbling. And so, you know, I'll be cautious, but excited. So more research hopefully to come. Thank you so much for your insight. That was absolutely a real response. I, I appreciate <laughs> the realness of it. I mean, we, we absolutely want to know that there's hope there, um, right. but we also appreciate your clinical professional yeah. um, thoughts on that. All right. So Dr. Ashram, I understand that um, sexually transmitted infection rates have risen quite a lot lately and a lot more than we've seen in many years. And you've mentioned in recent talks that we're currently in an STI pandemic. What is currently happening with STIs, including HIV, around the world and here in Connecticut? Yeah, I think that's a good uh, good question to start off the discussion. Let me start by giving you some good news before I break the bad news. The HIV, generally speaking, although we have work to do, but the numbers have started to come down. And, and in fact, if you look back from the beginning of the epidemic, the numbers have consistently come down, you know. So we are now down to 30,000, 32,000 cases a year in the United States as a country. Uh, and in Connecticut, it's been around 200, 220 cases a year in new cases. Then actually the last year, uh, the 2021 report reported even lower, like 174 cases in Connecticut. Although uh, we suspect that might be a pandemic effect on testing, so not sure, we'll see. Uh, but yes, the general trends are actually on the, to, to this, uh, in, the, in the right direction, uh, although that's not the story for all subgroups. You know, there are people who are uh, subgroups of the population, um, such as uh, people of color who are, you know, especially MSM people of color uh, still have the higher rates. Um, but it's a good news story in general. It's, it's, it's encouraging that we have achieved that by testing, by treatment, as well as by HIV prevention and PrEP. Uh, and 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 uh, and makes us makes us you know keep going uh, and more. Um, but the STIs. So well, now we come to a little bad part of the, you know, the, my answer, bad news of my answer. Um, so the bacterial STIs, and for clarity's sake, we are talking about syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. Uh, and so the bacterial uh, STI numbers uh, actually are going up. And I, I remind people that it's a pandemic you have not heard about. Uh, and the reason I refer it to pandemic, because it's not just US, but even other countries, Europe, Canada, Australia, even the economies or countries where we thought the healthcare access is pretty decent uh, are also reporting the same. You know, so if we break it down, uh, I think syphilis uh, is, has made a resurgence that's showing exponential increase. So, you know, if, if I were to uh, look at syphilis, you know, just since last year, there has been 30 to 50% uh, increase, uh, but um, uh, the relative increase over last five years uh, in women, for example, is 204% uh, in the country. Uh, and if I look at men, for example, uh, in last 10 years, uh, it has gone over 160%. Uh, and so both men and women are reporting a real resurgence in, in syphilis, for example. Uh, the gonorrhea is following similar trends. Again, uh, a sharp rise in last five, seven, eight period years uh, among men as well as women. Uh, the chlamydia rates have kind of remained stable to showing a more much milder increase, if anything, uh, mostly in women. Um, so we'll see. Uh, but the, the syphilis and gonorrhea numbers are strikingly high. And I think I'll end my answer to your question by reminding that uh, because of that uh, increase in syphilis is the rise in congenital syphilis resulting in deaths of uh, premature deaths of infants in Connecticut state uh, last, uh, last year alone, uh, eight cases uh, were reported and used to be zero. So if you, if you take it from zero to eight, you're looking at you know, uh, several hundred percent uh, increase, uh, you know, even as early as 2015 to 17, there, there were zero cases every year, and now we are reporting eight. 
Do you think that um, this sudden pretty dramatic increase in syphilis may be impacted also by a lot of providers who don't have a lot of experience working with it? For example, the congenital syphilis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, I think it, it's multifactorial. It, it has to be, you know, like all pandemics or like all epidemics. Um, it's never one reason, uh, you know, so and certainly the COVID disruptions did not help the cause. And uh, we have seen, despite uh, probably decrease in testing, the numbers are going up. So the real numbers might be even higher. Uh, and so, uh, so suddenly the provider, uh, you know, people, the doctors who are otherwise not thinking about syphilis uh, perhaps might be missing. And, and so that, that's one uh, aspect of it. But for suddenly, the, you know, to be able to reach the groups uh, that are most in need, uh, access to healthcare, uh, and, and uh, you know, just access to prevention services is also a big factor. So it's very multifactorial. Yeah, this, this data is absolutely uh, striking. I know that we in the Hartford region have partnered with some of our colleagues in the New Haven, Fairfield areas to look deeper into certain zip codes where some of our STIs are increasing, especially amongst specific populations. But are, are there areas, and I know you just talked about the percentages for men and women uh, are there areas of Connecticut where there are other populations disproportionately being affected right now? So I think I will have to look at the STI data in more details, but broadly speaking, the three places, I guess, that always came up uh, and comes up in the HIV context as well as uh, a Hartford County and then uh, the New Haven County and then the uh, the Bridgeport area. So th those three are usually the hotspots, uh, but that also reflects the density of the population in those places. But you know, demographically, we see that even though the people of color or African-American uh, represent only 10% of the state uh, in the STI numbers, uh, they are one of the highest. Uh, so suddenly, you know, much higher percentage of cases uh, are in, in, in those groups of people. Uh, and that applies to both men and women. Thank you, Dr. Asher. Those are absolutely the areas that we have been targeting with our zip code data and our deep dive and working across faith communities too within those areas to see what partnerships can help with initiatives and stuff. So thank you. It's interesting talking about zip codes. You know, I'm here at the uh, STI HIV Congress, the World World Meeting on STIs, and, and they were presenting some more updated analysis of the STDs in the United States. And I learned a little fun fact that only 3% of uh, U.S. counties uh, accounted for half of all the reported STIs in 2021. Uh, and, and so the rest, they rest 3% of the U.S. counties. So it just reflects that how certain uh, geographical hotspots can really be focused by the prevention services to make a big impact. And how unfortunate too, because if only a small number of places have the majority of the issues, then that means that the rest of the place, it's not on anyone's radar, or it may not right. be considered as much of a big deal because it's not happening to them or, you know, a lot of people in their areas. So yeah, yeah. that's, that's a little scary. Dr. Ashra, what would you say is the highest priority right now in terms of an action that we can take to reduce the prevalence of STIs? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad you asked this question and what a, what a great timing to do this. You know, just this morning, uh, I was with the meeting with the C Department of uh, Public Health, TPH and CT, and we were, we were forming a coalition. And so uh, our, our public health department is, is very serious about this. And, and I think that approach that has been uh, correctly discussed is, is what we call a syndemic approach. So not just treating STIs in the silo, but putting in the context of the whole package uh, and uh, of, of other epidemics, so HIV and monkeypox or mpox, uh, and, and really making it a multi-intervention uh, approach. You know, I, I don't think, you know, given the complexity of the problem, there are different infections also in the bucket of STIs. There are human behaviors and different implications. Uh, I don't think there'll be one size or one particular intervention making a solo impact, but um, yeah, so multiple interventions probably. I, I don't know if I would choose one or the other, you know, so that will include excellent access to healthcare, uh, uh, 
provisions of services uh, more uh, more freely, especially the testing and treatment services, uh, education, and then also uh, uh, then identifying a, a core group of people who are most likely to get an STI and focusing more targeted interventions uh, will probably make a biggest impact, including doxifab yeah. in, in that bucket, for sure. So definitely having a well-rounded approach. And for those listening who may never have heard of a syndemic, how would you, in a couple of sentences, describe what a syndemic is? It's a term that's throws around in the uh, in, in the public health or epidemiology world. And the idea is that, uh, you know, it's basically an aggregation of two or more epidemics or disease clusters. Uh, and so uh, meaning that a lot of infections or certain kinds of infections travel together. And so if you, if you just look at one but not the other, then you, it, you, you lose track and, and, uh, and your success is uh, less. So, so syndemic is simply implying that not just looking at, say, syphilis alone, uh, but looking at the bacterial STI, HIV, monkeypox or mpox uh, in, in one prevention bucket because they do, do seem to be traveling together. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right. Well, let's get into talking about doxypep. So mm -hmm. I wanted to start by um, asking you about an early article on doxypep that was in the New England Journal of Medicine that failed to show any impact of doxypep on gonorrhea. We're going we're gonna to hear from you that doxypep impacts um, all the bacterial STIs, but some of the early work didn't show gonorrhea. And I wondered if you could give us a little bit of a review of the literature on doxypep to make sure that all the yeah. providers who are listening are up to date. Yes, uh, so uh, I think you are uh, referring to the uh, the ANRS uh, 174, uh, the prior study, um, and then since then there have been uh, two other trials. And so, if I were to summarize them, first trial from the ANRS group who also did uh, some of the prep work, Iperge, uh, and so that was in France. That was published in 2018. And let me also also first of all preface this that the three studies I'm talking about. Are randomized trials, uh, and so that's a big deal. That's very important because you know what they did is they took a group of uh, men, and these were all mostly men and trans uh, trans women, uh, who uh, were more, many of them were on HIV prep. Uh, some of the one group was not, but regardless, and some of them were uh, living with HIV. But what they did were they they randomized them to to take the doxypep. Uh, which we will discuss details what that means, uh, or no PEP. Uh, they weren't blinded. Uh, they were, there was no placebo, uh, but they were basically, so they knew they were on doxypep, uh, and, and then they were followed for basically three SDIs, the syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. So yes, so the very first study that published in 2018, that was a setting in France, and, and that showed uh, you know, before we say that it did not show effect on gonorrhea, let's also emphasize that it showed over 70% uh, reduction in syphilis and around 70% reduction in chlamydia. Uh, but for gonorrhea, it did not have uh, the, any significant effect. There was a, you know, some 15% reduction, which was not significant. So subsequently, uh, 2022, uh, was uh, another study. This was US-based, and this was based in Washington State in California called uh, DoxyPep. Um, and that also similar design very much. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, basically that showed 65% uh, overall reduction. Uh, and if you look at specific STIs, even better numbers showed 87% relative risk reduction in syphilis. 88% uh, relative risk reduction in chlamydia uh, and 55% relative risk reduction in gonorrhea. So this time it was significant. And then finally, the third big study that was published or presented initially at CROI this year, um, also based in France called DOXYVAC, uh, again, combined, uh, uh, you know, 79% relative risk reduction in syphilis. 89% uh, relative risk reduction in chlamydia and 51% uh, relative risk reduction in gonorrhea, all of these uh, statistically significant. So to put it together, really, I think we have three trials, uh, randomized trials, consistently showing a good 70 to 85% relative risk reduction in syphilis, 
about 85 in the range of say 70 to 90% or 70 to 89% relative risk reduction in chlamydia. Now the effect on gonorrhea, which you were asking about seems to be varying. So as I said, two studies, one in US and one in France showed 50% relative risk reduction. Uh, but another study also in France, the, the 2018 one showed no major effect. And so the suspicion here is that that's driven by the prevalence of doxycycline resistance in gonorrhea in the community. So if you do it in, in a group of people where they already have resistance, you probably will not see major effect. Uh, but but for if you are if you are in a setting where there is not a lot of resistance, you will see that effect. So I think in U.S. the resistance is thought to be lesser than in France, and so that was a possible reason that was cited that the gonorrhea effect was variable by the setting. Uh, but the syphilis and chlamydia effect is fairly consistent. Uh, again, these are three trials, three separate groups of peoples done in separate countries, you know, separated by time space and person. So really three independent pieces of evidence coming in, uh, showing a consistent answer. All right. And so based on these studies uh, and these trials, we now have this new potential way of preventing syphilis, chlamydia, and to some extent gonorrhea by, by treating people with doxycycline, basically, as opposed to exposure. Correct. That's correct. Awesome, Sharon. So you actually took the took my question and answered it. I was going to rewind to ask Dr. Ashra, can you please say what doxypep is? Yeah, no, I think that's critically important to, to be clear. Uh, and because these acronyms and names are sometimes obvious to us, but not someone to someone who has not been doing this in their routine. Uh, so PEP stands for post-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, it's not the new concept. We have done that before. You know, for example, sometimes you get, you know, we are in New England, so we see someone complaining of tick on their body and they're worried they'll get a Lyme disease, but they haven't had a Lyme disease yet. So they take doxycycline to prevent the Lyme disease, for example. Uh, and, and for example, you get bitten by a dog, uh, which you might suspect, or, or an animal, which you might suspect could be a rabies carrier. You run to your doctor and you get post-exposure prophylaxis. And so it's not a novel concept, but it's a novel concept in the STI world. Um, so what really it means is that you had sex, uh, this was applied to the sexual uh, interaction uh, and based on these studies, uh, where you know you you thought or you may think that you might be at uh, getting require uh, STI, might be at risk of getting STI. And then you take it after the fact uh, within a certain time period for it to be effective. And that time period for those studies was sooner the better, but um, ideally in 24 hours, uh, but they did allow up to 72 hours. Uh, so if I were to say, take it within 24 hours, that's ideal, but up to 72 hours was allowed. And so you take 200 milligrams uh, in US, I think we have 100 milligram available uh, as a one, one uh, pill or capsule. So you take two of those and that's it. You don't continue to take any more one dose of 200 milligrams uh, with 24 to 72 hours after the sex. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. So are there CDC guidelines on providing doxypep? Yeah, that's a, that's a hard question. That's a hard <laughs> question. And uh, that's a question everyone is asking, even in, in, in the public health realm. Uh, so CDC uh, had released uh, sort of a paragraph uh, after the first trial came up, uh, which is basically a, a sort of a considered statement, a brief statement to say this can, but not some details. They are actively working on it. Uh, in fact, we were expecting something as early as last week, but didn't happen yet uh, in MMWR. So it's it's really, might, perhaps by the time you release this podcast, we might have it, who knows? So it's really ripe and, and there's a strong demand because community is asking, doctors are being asked, some people are doing it, some people are not because they don't know where to find the, the reference point. I will say that there are a couple of states which have taken an initiative to write uh, a version of guidelines. So if you are a doctor who wants some document reference, uh, you can look up San Francisco DPH. They have been ahead of the game because they were also the part of the trial, the main doxypep trial. So they have published it. 
and then Washington State, who are also the part of the initial study, have published uh, some sort of a guidance uh, on who to choose for Oxypep, how to do it, and what to instruct, and some basics. But CDC, hopefully soon. Yeah. Yes, hopefully soon. So as we await the CDC guidelines or response, um, in your professional opinion, who should get Doxypep? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I think my opinion also is similar to some of the experts in the field. Uh, in fact, uh, at, at uh, International AIDS Conference just uh, concluded yesterday, I think, at Brisbane, there was a whole session. I was able to catch some slides uh, by John Molina, who is uh, who is one of the principal investigators of one of those major trials. And so the idea here is to, to if I had to really choose, uh, you know, I would choose people who are, you know, more likely to get an STI quite simply. And so the biggest bang for buck, uh, so to speak, is people who are having sex with uh, casual partners without regular use of condoms. And this is men who have sex with men and transgender women. Uh, I will come to cis women for in a second, but yeah, so we're talking about MSM and transgender women uh, with or without HIV. Uh, so if they are having sex in a casual setting, uh, particularly if they have had one to two STI diagnoses in last 12 months. Uh, so what we have learned is from the modeling studies now that these are the people who are most likely to get another STI in future. And so the biggest bang for buck will be to, I guess, I guess target them if I had to. Uh, so these people hopefully have tested negative uh, for uh, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis uh, within the seven days of starting the PEP because you want, you want to make sure that they are negative to get the prophylaxis. And so they have recent negative test. And then uh, obviously they should not have any known allergy uh, to this particular drug. Uh, there are certain concomitant medications uh, like uh, retinoids for acne treatment or anti-convulsants, anti-epileptic medications, which may require some uh, adjustment or, or study or discussion with the pharmacist. But for most people, uh, you know, otherwise there's not reason to, to have any major contraindication. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I think I think choosing by the sexual history, a good sexual history is, is key. And then and then if they have a track record of recent STIs, I think that will be another way to find the right group of people to reach. Thank you so much, Dr. Ashra. You did say that you were going to get two cis women. Are you combining them in the high at risk? Well, yeah. So, no, no, I, I wish I wish I could say that. I wish okay. I could tell you that. Uh, and I think I did want to mention this caveat here. Uh, and it's really tragic and and uh, and unfortunate, but what has happened, I mean, as you as I just told you, prior, the numbers are exponentially rising, and especially, for example, uh, syphilis and gonorrhea, but also chlamydia in in women uh, and 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 the congenital syphilis uh, is is end result of that. So it would be very nice if I could just tell you that let's go for doxy in women. Uh, or cis women, uh, but uh, unfortunately, the only study that was done was done in Kenya, uh, a trial which uh, did not show any effect on the STIs. Um, actually, just yesterday, we learned here in Chicago uh, meeting uh, that uh, they did the analysis of adherence uh, of Toxipep in those women in Kenya, uh, and they basically, the, they learned that the, the adherence was very poor. In other words, the trial was done it did not show effect where the women were not actually taking doxy. And that was because of a variety of reasons, power dynamics, you know, uh, uh, fear of, you know, violence uh, in, in, in those communities and so on. And so uh, it basically the trial was not informative. Uh, so I cannot tell you if, if it will work in women or not. And so more, hopefully more trials are needed uh, before we can make that statement. Thank you so much for your professional opinions, because we sure. have to ask about cis women, right? Anyone listening may say, well, what are the implications, you know, uh, for the other uh, populations? Yeah. Um, and I was particularly uh, interested in hearing about the intimate partner um, violence, the result mm -hmm. of those women who were taking um, medications in the trial. So I, I was interested to hear about that. All right, it's time for our second quick break. Don't go anywhere because when we come back, we have more questions for Dr. Ashra about side effects 
of DoxyPep and more. We'll be right back. Hola, mi nombre es Pedro. Siempre he usado condón para prevenir contagiarme de VIH, pero esta última vez tuve un desliz. Semanas después, me di cuenta que tenía síntomas como el de un resfriado común. Afortunadamente, tenía una cita con mi doctor la semana siguiente. Mi doctor hizo algunos exámenes de rutina, incluyendo el del VIH. Ahora estoy en PrEP, cuidando a mí y a mi comunidad, diciéndoles que se chequen y se hagan la prueba del VIH. Para más información, visita test-ct.org. Welcome back. We've been talking with Dr. Amit Ashra about DoxyPep, and our next question pertains to potential side effects. Dr. Ashra, some antibiotics are toxic to human cells at certain doses. Is this a concern with DoxyPep? So, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, there is, in medicine, we say nothing is free, right? So there's always some trade-off. And then we the decision we make is, is that trade-off worth enough? Is that risk? How big is the risk? And is it is it worthy to take that risk? And so, first, we have clinical trial data. Uh, which is for about runs in about in the range of one to two year period. Um, and there, uh, you know, unless you have some history of allergy that you did not know, which was not common, uh, there was no major harm signal in terms of the toxicity. You know, there was some issues with uh, what we call GI disturbance. In other words, you know, taking antibiotic can make you a little nauseous, uh, and, and you can cause, it can irritate your stomach and particularly doxycycline can. And in fact, we always instruct people in general for doxy and here too, uh, to, to take it with plenty of water, uh, take it sitting up upright and not go to bed or not lie horizontal immediately. Uh, and so that you can really wash it down, take it with some food. And so those are general instructions for doxy, uh, which we always remind people. Uh, but apart from that, so we did not see in the clinical trials any major obvious toxic effects. Uh, having said that, you know, uh, it's different when you roll it out in the public and general population. So it's not uncommon that we learn some issues or side effects uh, later on once it's, it's, it's uh, panned out at the wider scale. And so I think, you know, uh, uh, right now the evidence is very much suggesting that there shouldn't be anything major, but when we are doing it, I think it's good to keep an eye out, you know, like we do for say vaccines and whatnot to, to find out any inadvertent uh, side effect that might be happening. And since it's a single dose, that also makes it less likely. That makes it much less likely, yes, exactly right. So for example, other issue with doxycycline, traditionally we know is a sun sensitivity, uh, but that has not been a concern because it's just a, such a low dose, you're right. So Dr. Ashra, speaking of concerns, there have been some around the prophylactic use of antibiotics possibly contributing to an antibiotic resistance. Has there been observed any in the doxypep studies? Yeah, a, a great question. And in fact, whenever we talk to other doctors about their opinion about doxypep, the number one concern that's put to us is a concern about resistance because we all learn about resistance all our life. We are afraid. We don't want to make it to our goal first. So let's break it down on what we know and what we don't know. So, the, so there are three infections that we are trying to prevent, which is, by the way, a great deal if you get, you know, three, three birds, you get three separate infections you're getting in one shot. So, you know, just let's take a minute to celebrate that. So we're trying to prevent three, uh, syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. So number one, syphilis, uh, luckily, has never had doxycycline resistance in decades uh, now. We have used for that purpose, apart from penicillin, both penicillin and doxycycline. Syphilis bug, the microbiology friends tell me that it just doesn't have that kind of propensity to, to gain resistance. So very unlikely and no signal so far. That's good. Number two, chlamydia, similar story. Uh, has not shown any signal in historically. We have used and 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 uh, in the studies also, even the cases who had breakthrough infections were not, but not because of resistance. It must have been adherence or whatnot, but not the resistance was not seen. So chlamydia and syphilis, we feel it's extremely unlikely. Uh, and then the gonorrhea. Well, that's that's the one that uh, kind of worries people the most. 
because that's a bug which has been on the list of um, you know, uh, AMR, the antimicrobial resistance uh, concerning uh, uh, microorganisms on the world list, WHO list, CDC list, because it has reported a lot of resistance before, uh, even to other antibiotics. In fact, you know, it's been termed superbug in, in some contexts. And so that's the one bug that does worry us. Already there was a lot of resistance. And as I discussed before in France, initial study, uh, the baseline resistance, the resistance had, before even the doxypep was given was so high that doxy didn't even do anything. And so those cases in the trials did not show the resistance yet, but the concern is very much that it might be that over time, it probably if their exposure is high enough, and knowing the propensity of that bug, uh, it can have resistance. So far, we can't say that for sure, but it may. Uh, the third is what about, uh, the fourth rather is, is what about other bugs which are hanging around? You know, so for example, Staph, is, Staph aureus is another one which we, so many of us live with it. And so again, we have not seen that signal. We saw that in fact, the Staph aureus uh, resistance, uh, the Staph aureus prevalence went down because of doxycycline, because it also works for it. Although that wasn't the main point, but the idea was that it was no signal yet. So we'll see. Uh, having we'll said see. that, uh, the other part of the, the converse is also true, is that once because you are using prophylaxis, you're getting lesser infections. And so in fact, uh, one study suggested that there was a net uh, 50 to 60% less use of uh, ceftriaxone, which is the one antibiotic we want to prevent uh, from getting resistance to. We want to save it. Uh, so what's the net effect? Well, that I don't know. And I don't think anyone will be able to pinpoint and tell you the answer today. Uh, the answer will be to keep eyes out. Hopefully CDC and, and public health departments will have some sort of a surveillance mechanism to see where this is going. Um, so that's important, but at the face of it, given there's such a strong, consistent benefit, it will be hard for me as a provider to not offer someone a, a, a treatment or prophylaxis that I know works uh, because of the fear of unknown. You know, because then you 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 just are you know how far would you go then with your fear? So I think we should monitor it, but at the same time, I don't think I will withhold it. Awesome. Oh, that sounds great. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Ashura. Uh, recently, a reduced incidence of gonorrhea among people who have received the meningitis vaccine has been reported. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, another uh, exciting uh, work from France. I know we should uh, we should uh, you know uh, thank our French friends here again. Uh, same group of people who initially gave us doxypep. Uh, when they noticed that the gonorrhea, uh, gonorrhea uh, uh, effect of and the effect of doxypep on gonorrhea was not as strong, and so they came up with this idea, which had been floated around before but never been really tested in a clinical trial. They said, "Well, so for the context, the meningitis B specifically, a meningitis B vaccine." Uh, has Neisseria meningitides uh, as uh, the the uh, organism that we are trying to prevent, so the antigens uh, of that organism, and that shares some some surface antigens with the gonorrhea. So in other words, they are from the same family. You know, they're cousins. They're not exactly you know same bug, but they are cousins. So someone came up with a very clever thought. Well, if if the vaccine can prevent this um, infection from meningitis bug. So how about it also probably prevents some effect for, uh, you know, prevents to some extent uh, from the cousin, which is gonorrhea. And so that led to that study. They gave the people, uh, uh, randomized them. Uh, so again, some people got meningitis B vaccine, uh, two doses. Uh, uh, I think they were separated by one month. And then other group did not. And then uh, everything else was same because this was randomized. And, and the people who got the vaccine had about 50% less gonorrhea, although the effect confidence intervals was wide because the sample size and all that, but at the face of it, some 50% reduction, but the confidence interval went from, I think, as low as eight to 10% to higher than that, higher than 50%. So very encouraging. And, and at least one study has shown that effect. 
very encouraging indeed. So do the meningitis vaccine and doxypep have a combined effect against gonorrhea? Yeah, that's that's an enticing question. <laughs> and so uh, that needs to be tested. I think we'll see. There are many unknowns and even more unknowns for meningitis B vaccine. You know, uh, uh, number one, it's not the vaccine which we routinely give uh, to everyone. So it, mm -hmm. usually we give it in special groups, people who have you know, immune problems, for example, they don't have a spleen or certain medications they take, which makes them susceptible to that particular type of meningitis. Um, or uh, young adolescents sometimes who are in dorm setting and things like that, or college students. And so otherwise we don't routinely dole it out. So, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see, but only one trial did this uh, as opposed to doxypep, as I told you, we have three uh, and Unlike, you know, unlike the doxypep, the vaccine effect, we always know may have an expiry date. You know, we don't know that. You know, not all vaccines effect last over time. So this was, I think, up to one year. So it's hard to project beyond that. Um, so, you know, I think it's exciting, the beginning of the story, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know how far and how it will pan out. And so the combined with doxypep, in theory, there are two different mechanisms, so it should work. But... Um, you know, uh, it's hard to project. And also, uh, as it depends on the resistance of gonorrhea to doxy, so we don't know. So that, that needs to be studied. These are very good questions and hopefully will lead to more work. Absolutely. Um, I wonder too, I mean, if the, if gonorrhea, if the gonorrhea bacteria is more likely to become resistant to antibiotics, can it also become resistant to the meningitis B yeah. vaccine? Yeah. That's that's good. I mean, I'm not a vaccine expert per se, but I was talking to uh, Dr. Sanjay Ram from uh, UMass, who has been dedicated his career to gonorrhea vaccine, and he said, first time I'm excited. <laughs> so it's good. It's a proof of concept. But yes, exactly. You know, I think till we don't have data, you know, nature is complex enough that we can't um, predict accurately. So can I ask you, so he said he was excited. Um, does that mean that you think that the um, fact that the meningitis vaccine works against gonorrhea may be a breakthrough in making a vaccine against gonorrhea Correct. itself. That's exactly where it's going. Exactly right. I think that's a natural extension. It gives a proof of concept. Um, but uh, I think the question for CDC and public health agencies is that do we have enough to say, well, roll out MB vaccine? Because perhaps the harm from vaccine is not so much that we know so far. And so usually we reserve it. So that's a policy question because that means additional resources, additional expenditure, perhaps some untowards side effects that haven't been known from the vaccine. So those are the questions for policymakers. And if I don't know, I can't speak for them. If it was up to me, I would commission more trials and longer trials, uh, perhaps do it in the context of research uh, so that people get access, but we learn something as well. Um, so that, but I don't know. We'll see what if CDC makes a comment on that. I have no idea. Thank you, Dr. Asha. So I'd like to bring it back to something you had mentioned earlier about people who would be indicated for doxypep. Taking it a step further, if people take doxypep, do you think it will change risk assessments for HIV testing and HIV prep recommendations? Because uh, in case there's anyone listening who may not know this, people who have tested positive for an STI are clearly indicated as a candidate for HIV prep to prevent them from getting HIV. So if people are having less positive STI results, is that going to somehow change uh, people's ability to be uh, recommended to be prescribed on HIV prep? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it should. And and I, I guess going back to the whole syndemic discussion, right? So we have to really look at this as a package. Uh, so if you are not uh, testing positive for HIV, so you don't have HIV, you get a whole package of STI prevention, HIV prep, and also don't forget the, the Mbox vaccine if you haven't been vaccinated, uh, and, and then the rest of prevention services. Uh, and so it, it, you know, the whole beginning of sexual history and testing according to that, uh, you know, should go in a package, really, and, and it should. Uh, having said that, also we have becoming uh, become lenient on offering prep. So if people are, if somebody asks me a prep and they don't are not willing to discuss sexual history, that's fine. Uh, you know, we we don't want to hold back. 
if they don't want to SDI testing, they just want to prep or something like that, we know that's fine. But in general, yes, people, you know, um, should get SDI testing, get a whole package. Yeah. Absolutely. And I love that idea of a whole package. That sounds great. I love it right. as well. Dr. Ashra, do you have any last comments you'd like to say to our listeners? You know, I just wanted to make a little plug for uh, excellent service for clinicians. So what has happened is due to the STI epidemic, as uh, Dante already kind of hinted in the beginning, that there might be providers who haven't really dealt with this and are seeing syphilis and and, and they're not sure what to do or, or not all of them have access to infectious disease experts at their you know, they might be in an urgent care, you might be in a, in a clinic in the community. So CDC funds this excellent service called stdccn.org. And so STD is sexually transmitted diseases. CCN is clinical consultation networks. There's one word, stdccn.org. Uh, CDC's uh, guidelines in, have an app and the app actually connects to that CDC, stdccn.org. And any provider nationwide can type in a question based on the region, it gets assigned to an expert, for example, and, and if you are a Connecticut physician, it will trickle down to me. Uh, and similarly, other states have other counterparts, uh, my counterparts. And so they get a question uh, and then they review it. And, and based on their expertise, sometimes they can even discuss with other experts that we have access to, uh, national experts even. And so we are really helped some very complex cases and questions could be simple, could be complex, and we get back to you within 48, 72 hours. Uh, we can even see the patient if needed and things like that. So uh, use that service in Connecticut State in particular. We have seen uh, awareness was not so much. We have seen few, like three to three requests a month, but we would like to, because I'm sure people are seeing much more than that. Uh, and, and syphilis, for example, can confuse even the best of us. So please do use that service, stdccn.org. Thank you so much for that plug. All right. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. On behalf of the Connecticut AETC, I'd like to thank Dr. Ashra for coming on today's show and providing us with such a great discussion. Thank you so much. This was fun. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed yourself. We didn't put you on too much of a hot seat, did we? No, no. And you guys were spot on. Your questions uh, shows your research. Thank you. Yes, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. Don't forget, Getting to You podcast airs every month, and we can be found on all podcast platforms and the Connecticut AETC website. In the near future, we plan to host our podcast on YouTube, so stay tuned so you can watch us on there as well. That's right. And regardless of whatever platform you choose to watch or listen to our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to show your support. And if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or just want to share your feedback, please feel free to do so in the comments section or email us at ctaetc at yale.edu. That's c-t-a-e-t-c at yale.edu. Please join us again because there's, there's no, no getting, getting to you, you without, without you. you. Bye. Bye. Bye.